The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said to the chief priests and the elders of the people, Hear another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants and went on a journey. When vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to obtain his produce. But the tenants seized the servants, and one they beat, another they killed, and the third they stoned. Again, the landowner sent other servants, more numerous than the first ones, but they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, thinking, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and acquire his inheritance. So they seized him, (coughs) threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants when he comes? They answered him, He will put those wretched men to a wretched death and lease his vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the proper time. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. By the Lord has this been done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. This is an absolutely shocking parable. It shocks us Because unlike any other parable that Jesus tells, this one ends in disaster. The beloved son of the landowner is taken, bound probably, he's beat to a pulp, 
He's thrown over a wall and down into a ditch. And then most likely he is stoned from above. Huge rocks landing on his dying body. Bloody and broken and left for the dogs. And unlike other parables of Jesus, like that of the Good Samaritan, there is no Good Samaritan that comes along in this story and saves that boy. He dies a miserable death, and it's just plain shocking. So why would Jesus end his parable after so many other parables that are sort of domestic, you know, the woman looking for the coin in her home when it's dark, or, you know, the, the, the son that comes home after living a terrible life and he's welcomed by his father. Why in this parable does Jesus end it on such a tragic and absolutely awful note? We're left astounded. And so we need to go back a little bit and retell the story, let it unfold anew just a little bit. Because so Jesus uses as his primary image here a vineyard. Everybody listening to this story when Jesus told it would have automatically, intuitively understood that being a parable, the vineyard is Israel. It's the people of God, people of Judah. The very same vineyard that we hear about in the first reading from the Old Testament. The vineyard is the kingdom of God. It's the, the land of Israel. It's the people of Israel. The landowner, people probably catch on pretty quickly, is God, the father of Israel. He's created this vineyard. He's worked it. He loves it. It's, it's the pride of his life. And he puts people that he thinks he can trust in charge of it. Who are those people? The people that are put in charge of the vineyard? It's not obvious until perhaps later in the story. Are, of course, the chief priests, the high priests, the people of the temple, the leaders of the people of God. The people who are supposed to be mediating God's presence to the people down below. You know, the holy people people who enforce the law of God, the people who offer sacrifices. They're the tenants. They do not respond well to their responsibilities. And they forget about the landowner. They, they don't do what he's supposed to do. They don't give back to him the fruit of his work, the fruit of his land, the fruit of his vineyard. And that's when he decides to start sending more servants and more servants to speak to them, to cajole them, to try to convert them back to doing right by the landowner. Who are those servants? They are, of course, the prophets. They are these people that God has sent continually to Israel over its history to speak to their hearts anew and say, God deserves better than what you're giving. You can't hold back. God has given you this land. It's his vineyard, not yours. You work for him. So change, convert, do something new, have a new heart.
towards God and his people. But it doesn't work. They, they take those servants sent to them from the Lord, from the master of the vineyard, and they beat them and they kill them, just like, of course, the prophets. Then, finally, at a loss as to how to change the hearts of these people who he has put in charge of his vineyard, he says, aha, I have an idea. I will send my own son. Surely they will respect him. Surely he will be able to speak to their hearts and have them come back to me and have them do right by me and and right by the people. So he sends his only son, his beloved son. Who is the son? Obviously, as Jesus is telling the story, it's Jesus himself. And then comes the difficult part. The son arrives, and what happens to him? These same tenants who have hurt and murdered and stoned the other messengers from the master do exactly the same thing to his son. It is a disastrous moment. The son, too? Even the son is beaten and bloody and thrown into a ditch and stoned to death and left for the dogs. Even the son? Well, at one level, even the people hearing this that aren't understanding the story from Jesus' point of view, they're astounded as well. Jesus' parables never end like this. Yet Jesus is looking straight into the eyes of the chief priests and the elders of the people when he tells this story. And this disastrous end point, he is obviously talking about himself, but he's also talking about them. Who is it who will take the son and will beat him and throw him into a ditch to die like a dog? It's these guys he is speaking this parable to. The chief priests and the elders. Not the brigands. Not the tax collectors. Not the prostitutes. Not the sick or the infirm or the leprous. Or those who don't meet the mark of purity in Israel's laws. It's the high priest. They're the ones, and they don't even see it. Jesus has to nudge them and say, what would that Lord, that master of the vineyard, do to those guys after they killed his son? And they themselves answer, well, he would take them, and he would take them, they were wretched people, and he would do the same to them. He'd kill them and throw them into the ditch. And Jesus does not say yes to that. Instead, he looks them in the eye and says, did you never read about the cornerstone that was thrown away that later becomes the cornerstone of the building? (laughs) That's me. Who's the son? That's me, the cornerstone. 
who are then the tenants who do these terrible things, these wretched men? It's you. And for that reason, the sinners and the tax collectors and all these other people that you look down upon, they get into the kingdom of God way ahead of you. Well, that must have been a hard message to hear. But Jesus has tried over and over and over again to, to make the point to them and to teach them, to try to open their hearts, to see that God's presence is in him, that the kingdom of God is here, that his way of caring for the poor and the needy and the broken and the sinner is what they should be doing. He wants them to change their hearts and seemingly they don't. So why then did the early Christian community in the first century keep sharing this story and the others like it, this being the most extreme? Because the early Christian community knew that it wasn't just high priests and elders who suffered from this kind of blindness, this kind of hard-heartedness, this, this, this instinct to make themselves the gods here and, and, and to just use God for their own purposes. They're following their will and putting God's label on it. And that temptation, that sin, didn't end with the beginning of a new church. The reason this story gets included in the Gospels, why it continues to be told, is because that temptation afflicted the early church as well. There's always that temptation for the big shots in the community to suddenly puff themselves up and say, we're in control here. We're in control of your faith. We're in control of religion here. We're in control of God. And you put the Jesus sticker on it to make it look good. But leadership and authority and power in any church, in any religion, is always a dangerous thing because it can so easily become my authority, my power, and my ability to manage God through the rest of you. Instead of letting God lead us and, and God's Spirit move us and Jesus' way be our way. As it was in the first century, we continue to tell these stories because that temptation continues to always be a part of the life of our church. The temptation to use our faith for our own good, to follow ourselves and our will rather than the will of our God. To use Jesus as simply a stamp of approval on what we want to do. To push the Holy Spirit back into some cupboard somewhere where he won't actually bother us. And that temptation and that sin is one that plagues us through the centuries. The history of our church, the history of any church, is plagued by that kind of abuse of authority and power and holiness. And if you want to know why this week just passed, this coming week, and weeks thereafter, 
There are over 400 people meeting in Rome with Pope Francis, everyone from the Pope down to people from the pew, cardinals, bishops, priests, ordinary people like yourselves, locked in a big hall with no um, reporters present, praying every day, listening to the scriptures, meditating, reflecting, pondering, sharing, in synod, walking together, which synod means. They're doing it because they are resisting this very temptation we see in the elders of the people and the chief priests that plague not only the religion of Jesus' time, but plagues every religion. They are gathering in synod to pray, to listen to the Holy Spirit, to attend to God's will, not our will, to ask the Holy Spirit to help them know Jesus and his way, and to love him and to follow him, and to put far away from us the temptation to use authority and power and holiness and grandeur for our own ends to soften our hearts as an institution and as individuals and as big communities and small communities making up a great church that crosses the frontiers of the world. That's what they're doing in the synod. They're saying, we don't want to be a church where we stand up against Jesus. We do not want to be a church that beats Jesus up and throws him into a ditch. We do not want to be a church that makes our will and our power and our presumed relationship to God a source of grandosity for ourselves. We want our relationship to Jesus to be a healing balm for a hurting world. The world needs Jesus. The world needs the mercy Jesus shows to us. The world needs Jesus' spirit. The world needs a church that is humble and self-giving and lives as Jesus lives. And that's why over 400 people from Pope Francis on down to peasants from the pew are gathering in Rome this week and next week and the week after. So let us pray for them that in their prayer and in their conversations and in their friendships, the Holy Spirit might truly bless them and yet again renew and purify and bless our church so that it might be a blessing for our world.